Good morning, Sun Valley Church. It's good to be together again, uh, worshiping our Lord Jesus on this Palm Sunday. We're thankful that you're joining us here via video, and hopefully that uh, you've joined your family around the uh, TV or video screen of some kind, and and will be worshiping worshiping with us here in all of Sun Valley. I hope that you'll be uh, encouraged and blessed enough to send on this link to others in your family or in your neighborhood or friends around uh, Yakima or beyond uh, so that they may also enjoy uh, this particular service. Today, of course, is Palm Sunday, as I said, and, and we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there with me as I begin to speak about that to you. But how to speak about this, the most important, profound, and glorious event in all of human history is a daunting task, at least for me. I'm certain that I won't be able to adequately communicate to you all the magnitude that's found herein, or at least miss something that is important. But I've been praying that with the help of the Holy Spirit, that these words will draw your heart and mind into the worship of our Lord Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 23, that the Father is gathering worshipers. My prayer is that he'll do that today here, add a few more worshipers to those who are already worshiping him around the globe and in heaven. So if you have a Bible, turn there, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and I'll be looking at those verses closely, particularly verses 5 through 8. But these verses, um, Paul is simply encouraging the Philippians, the Philippian Christians at least, to fight for unity. Because the greatest enemy of joy in the spread of the gospel is Christians not getting along. That's the thing that impedes our joy or robs us of our joy and impedes the gospel is when you and I can't get along. Even the best Christians need to work at this. Paul said that the way to harmony is twofold. Firstly, he says in verses 1 and 2 that we ought to have a common cause if we want to be a harmonious group of people. Let me read those for you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So the first factor, the first step in maintaining unity in the Christian church, harmony in relationships with other Christians is to be of one cause, one mind. And that cause, of course, is Christ and the gospel of Christ. Secondly, Paul says in verses 3 and 4 that we ought to put others first, humbly do so. Let me read for you verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. There's the problem. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So we have a twofold, two-step process to develop genuine harmony in relationships with other Christians. So that we aren't robbed of our joy. So that we can be effective evangelists. Have a common cause of Christ. And in humility, consider others better than yourself. We can all agree, of course, on the cause of Christ. We don't have to debate that issue. The challenge simply is prioritizing that in each of our lives. Now we just have to think about others before we think of ourselves, and that's equally as challenging, isn't it? 
I know it is for me. We are all born selfish people. This is natural for each of us. So Paul used Christ in verses 5 through 8. He used Christ as the supreme example of humble servanthood. In doing so, he wrote some of the most important words in all of Scripture. Because these verses describe the condescension of God into humanity. God becoming one of us. Let me read verses 5 through 8 for you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christian friends, these are some important words. Although all eight of these verses were intended by Paul to drive home his argument for humility in the Christian life, their content refers directly to the climax of Jesus' saving activity while on earth. They refer directly to Holy Week, the week in which we find ourselves today, which is the beginning. Holy Week includes today, Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It includes the cleansing of the temple, the final teachings of Christ, the Last Supper where we celebrate Monday, Thursday here at Sun Valley Church. And includes also Jesus' arrest and mock trial. And of course, Good Friday, which is the observation of Jesus' death on the cross for us. And then of course, next Sunday, the high point in the Christian calendar, Resurrection Sunday, which we all look forward to every year. So taking Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, I want to try to help you understand a little bit more about this week and so prompt you into greater worship of our Savior Jesus Christ, our worthy Savior. If you're following along, you can do so by downloading the outline from our resources page on sunvalleychurch.net. And point number one is this, one week. All this focus, all of human history, all of God's plan for the ages is focused on this one week. It's one week of humiliation. He says, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So one week. Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, was the beginning of the first Holy Week. And of course, huge crowds, some estimate between 75 and 100,000, gathered to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem that day. They hoped and believed him to be the promised Messiah King that they had grown up learning about and reading and memorizing from their Old Testament scriptures. They had heard of and seen the miracles of this man, Jesus. His fame had gone before him. They believed that he was the rightful King of Israel. He was the descendant of King David after all. They knew that Jesus had the power to overthrow the Roman government and set himself up as king. He made food out of nothing. He controlled the weather. He raised people from the dead. Those are all good qualities for a king, wouldn't you say? But what they didn't understand that this Messiah was different. 
They did not realize that the crown he would be wearing at the end of this monumental week would be made of thorns, not gold. The Jews mistook their true enemy to be Rome instead of sin and Satan. Although Jesus had told them, they misunderstood that the true power, true success, and ultimate victory only comes through the way of humility, sacrifice, and death. Just a couple of days prior to Palm Sunday, James and John, some of the most prominent disciples, were vying for positions of power. They asked Jesus if they could sit on his right and his left. Because they thought this, in this eminent kingdom they were going to be cabinet members. And John wanted to be the chief of, chief of staff, as did James. They had no doubt that Jesus was the promised king. But Jesus famously flipped this request on its head. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, Jesus said this. He called together his disciples after hearing this request from James and John. And Jesus said this to his little band of 12. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now listen to how he completes this just opportunity of instruction. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, referring to the, that person who these disciples believe was the Messiah, King of Israel, the God of heaven, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, the humility that Jesus spoke of in Mark 10, he demonstrated during Holy Week, including the triumphal entry on a colt of a donkey, which according to Zechariah 9.9 was the emblem of humility. Evidently, everybody missed that. And then in John 13, he demonstrated his humility by washing the disciples' feet. And then during the trial on Thursday evening, he stood there silently while they accused him of all sorts of false claims. He could have easily defended himself. He could have evaporated the whole group. But he stood there humbly, quietly, serving the very people who were accusing him. But even after all this, his disciples believed that they were in on the ground floor of this new kingdom. With all the hoopla being made around Jesus, they thought with the crowds that Rome's occupation was finally coming to an end. They thought that Jesus was going to ride right up to Pilate's palace and throw him out and take over there on Palm Sunday. Little did they know that Jesus would take a detour to the cross. Picture it. A Palm Sunday parade. All the crowds, the throngs lining the streets, throwing down palm branches and their garments so that the king of Israel could enter into the capital city of Jerusalem and take over. And then the band gets to the end of the road and everybody stops and looks around and the band kind of fades off. Now, now what? 
No, nothing. They thought. You see, friends, the kingdom of God is not about exalting self. It's about humbling self. And the king of this kingdom showed us how during Holy Week. All of human history points to the climactic events of this one week. And, and, and these, these important events were planned in eternity past, according to Ephesians chapter 1. These events were foretold in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15. These events were foreshadowed in the sacrificial system all throughout the Old Testament and then fulfilled in Christ during this one week. If, you see, friends, this week was not the unraveling of a political campaign. No, it was meticulously designed and accomplished by God. God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Every breath that was taken in Jerusalem that week was taken at the hand of God. Every word that was said, every action that was taken was done so at the request and demand and decree of God. Jesus, the king of the universe, came to accomplish the redemption of mankind by serving mankind. Because God is humble, because he is serving, because he is self-sacrificing, he condescended to earth to become one of us and provide the forgiveness of sin through his own suffering and death. Jesus was born for this, to save his people from their sins. Do you remember what the angel told Joseph and Mary to call their son? Do you remember the name that, they, that this angel gave them? You shall call his name what? Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Listen, friends. Jesus saved us from our sins by dying in our place. He did what we needed done. That is the definition of humble service. The cross of Christ takes up large portions of the New Testament. Jesus' final week, this one week culminating on the cross takes two-fifths of Matthew's gospel. It takes three-fifths of Mark's gospel. It takes one-third of Luke's gospel. And the apostle John designates, designates one half of his gospel to this final week because of its importance. What are we learning? It shouldn't surprise us because even the name Jesus bears the point of his life. You, of course, know what the name Jesus means. Yahweh saves. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. If you want an accurate summary of Old and New Testament, simply look at the cross of Christ. It is the theme of the entire Bible. The Old Testament sacrifices of were pictures of Christ's suffering and death. The prophets explicitly foretell it, which leads us to point number two in your outline. Two prophecies. 
These prophecies, of course, are from Old Testament scriptures and were written hundreds of years before Christ was even born. And I, and I share this simply so that you'll know that the end of Jesus' earthly life wasn't a tragedy or a set of unfortunate circumstances that cut short the life of some promising leader. You need to know that this was 100% in the plan of God, planned before time began. How do we know this? Well, Jesus said so. His apostle John said so. His apostle Peter said so and recorded it in their epistles. The apostle Paul said so. And of course, Old Testament prophets say so. Hundreds of them. Hundreds. I'm just going to cover two this morning. Two prophecies. One week, two prophecies. First, from Leviticus chapter 16. I want you to turn there with me if you would. Leviticus chapter 16. And I'm going to point out a few, I think, important elements from this chapter. I want to show you two things specifically that stand out. This Leviticus 16 is the famous Day of Atonement passage in Leviticus. And here we see by the use of two goats that, uh, that one was a sin bearer and the other was a satisfaction. Let's look at some verses here, if you would, in your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 5. And Aaron shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering. And then in verse 7, then Aaron shall take up the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's that portable tabernacle. And then verse 8, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats one lot for the Lord and the other for the lot of Azazel. That's the goat that's let free. The verse 9. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. That's the one that would die. But for the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel, that would be the one that was set free in the wilderness, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, I'm going to try to explain this to you because it's significant. What happened with these two goats is, as I just read for you, Aaron cast lots. One was chosen for physical sacrifice. The other was chosen to be sent away into the wilderness. These both picture Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you and me in his life, death, and resurrection. First, let's take the, the, the goat that was sent away. Jumping down to verse 21 in Leviticus 16, and Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. So what was happening was there was a, a passing of the sins of all of Israel through the hands of the priest Aaron onto that goat, and that goat was to take away those sins away from the people, away from the presence of the Lord, into the wilderness. This is exactly what Jesus accomplished. He took our sin upon himself and took it away from the presence of the Lord, away from his people. Listen to Hebrews 9, 26. 
as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all time at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then 1 Peter 2.24, he himself, that is Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we have been healed. The first Old Testament goat took on the sins of its owners by the laying on of the hands of the priest. As I read for you from verse 21, this is what Jesus came to do. Sin, as we know, separates us from God. And so God became man in order to take our sin upon himself. He came from heaven, became man, took our sin away from us, out of the presence of God, and dealt with it on Calvary. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The question here, listen, the question here is whether or not he took your sin. Have your sins been laid on the sacrifice of Calvary? Did he take your sins to the cross out of the presence of God? All you must do to affirm and confirm this truth is to confess your sins to him and embrace the sacrifice of Christ for you personally. Receive Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Saved from your sin. Saved to a relationship with our heavenly father, the creator of heaven and earth. But the second goat, the second point from Leviticus chapter 16 is seen in verse 15. So if you're still in Leviticus 16, look down at verse 15. I've circled this verse in my Bible and put a little red ink mark by it because of its importance to me, to all of us. Then Aaron shall kill the goat of the sin offering. That's the second goat. And he will kill it because it is for the people. And he will bring its blood inside the veil, that is into the holy of holies. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So the second goat, the goat that was sacrificed, was used to satisfy the wrath of God towards sin. It was the one that was sac sacrificed to, to satisfy God's justice. So this, as I just read for you, this blood's goat was taken and placed before God for sin in the holiest of holy places where the Ark of the Covenant lay. This specific location was important because it was there between the wings of the cherubim, the gold wings of the cherubim that sat upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant, God told Moses he would dwell with his people. So the presence of God was there between the wings of the cherubim, the gold cherubim. The mercy seat was right below those wings with a hole in the top of this cover for the ark, gold, pure gold cover, that the angels looked down into upon the elements of the ark, one of which was the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses. So the mercy seat rested right beneath the, the cherubim, where the presence of God was. And so Aaron went in and sprinkled the blood of the second goat on top of the mercy seat so that the, the presence of God on earth would be looking down on 
the contents of the Ark of the Covenant, would be looking down onto the Ten Commandments, and before he saw his righteous law, his Ten Commandments that his people had broken over and over and over again, what would he see but the shed blood of an innocent? And his wrath would be appeased. His wrath would be taken away. He would be satisfied. What an amazing truth. We can now enter into the presence of God because of the innocent blood of Christ being spilt and sprinkled on the mercy seat of heaven so that the God of heaven will look on us who have broken the law of God and see the innocent blood of Christ in our stead which opens up the way into a relationship, a warm and loving personal relationship with our creator, the God of heaven. Oh, what wonderful truth this is, Christian friend. This is the second reason Jesus died. The first being to take away our sin and the second being to satisfy the wrath of God because of our sin. Jesus accomplished both. William Cooper, a song that was sung earlier, just that we just sang earlier together. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners plunge beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, that thief that died next to Jesus. He rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. It is completely, fully adequate to take care of our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, seen in Leviticus 16, thousands of years before Jesus was born. And then Isaiah 53 which was also read for you earlier in our service, Isaiah 53. This is a wonderful chapter in the Old Testament. And of course, in Philippians 2, Paul was alluding to Isaiah 53. In this famous chapter, Isaiah refers to the sins that required God to become man. It says in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned away, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that his Lord has laid on our Savior, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. What amazing truth. What an amazing confirmation for us that this was in the plan of God since the beginning before time began and eternity passed, Jesus, God's Son, stood in our place to absorb all the anger of God the Father for the many ways that we rebelled against him. Let me read for you again verses 4 and 5 from, Psalm, from Isaiah 53. Surely he, that is Jesus Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. What a beautiful, beautiful thought and plan. Friends, Jesus' death was not just an example of selfless love for which the Apostle Paul used it in Philippians 2 that we should imitate, it was certainly that, but it was 
more fundamentally a purposeful act that is the only means for our forgiveness and salvation. This leads us to the third point in your outline. Three takeaways from Holy Week. One week, two prophecies. Now thirdly, three takeaways. What can we take away from this? I have some ideas for both Christians and those who have yet to know Christ. For Christians and non-Christians, the first takeaway is, um, is this, take away Christ. Take away Christ this Holy Week from the verses that the Apostle Paul shares with us in Philippians 2. Take away Christ. We're being called upon now by our civic authorities to shelter at home. Isn't that the call of the day? Shelter at home? Can I say it this way? Shelter at home with Christ. Use Holy Week to jumpstart your spiritual life while you're at home. Examine Jesus closely. Read the accounts in all four Gospels of this one Holy Week. And while you're sheltering at home, do so with Christ. Redeem the time. Don't sit there and watch endless hours of Netflix. Go deep into Christ. Pick up a copy of John Owen's wonderful book, The Glory of Christ, and sit in your chair with a cup of co coffee or hot cocoa and read The Glory of Christ by John Owen. Or John MacArthur's One Perfect Life. Or Mark Jones's Knowing Christ. Any of which will encourage your soul to bow and worship before this one who I've been describing. Secondly, the second takeaway. Take away the love of God. Friends, as we consider, contemplate, meditate upon Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. Leviticus 16 Isaiah 53, we cannot but help see the love of God. In verse 5 of Philippians 2, he said, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. The name Christ is significant. It refers to Jesus being the Holy One or the Anointed One. Long promise from Old Testament times. The one set apart to do God's will. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, was set apart in eternity past to accomplish our salvation and redemption by his faithful high priestly work while he was a human. And God planned to become man to taste death for each and every one of us. An amazing biblical point as you consider taking away the love of God for contemplation, an amazing biblical point of interest is that you can hardly find a verse in scriptures about the love of God that doesn't refer to in the same context as the cross of Christ. The two are intimately connected, the cross of Christ and the love of God. Listen to these famous verses, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God is love and the cross of Christ. 1 John 4.10 in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a substitution 
a satisfaction for our sins. The love of God and the cross of Christ. You might ask, well, how do I know that God loves me, John? That might be good for the crowds or the masses, but how do I know that God loves me? Friends, have you been listening? The answer is the theme of all of scripture. The answer is the course of human history. The answer is found all over any place you look. God not only sent his only son into the world to live and die for us, he sent us the scriptures to tell us about it. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Takeaway number three. Takeaway number one, take Christ away. Takeaway number two, take the love of God away. Takeaway number three, listen, take away the need to respond. As a Christian, the need to respond is ubiquitous. It's everywhere you look. We must respond to the cross. We must respond to Holy Week, Christian friend. And how do we respond? First is this. I've got some ideas. Practice hating sin. Do you hate your sin or do you play with your sin? It was sin that put Jesus to death. It was sin that required God to become man. It was sin that caused Jesus Christ to go through everything he did during Holy Week. Calvary requires us to kill sin. Since Christ was crucified, let's crucify sin in our lives. If we were crucified with Christ, our sin went there with him to the cross. Let's not resurrect our sin and breathe life into it. DNR over our sin. DNR. Do not resuscitate. No CPR on our sin. Kill it dead. Leave it nailed to the cross. Paul in Galatians 6.14 said it like this. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the only thing, the sole thing in the life of Paul. I'm only going to talk about the cross of Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Do not resuscitate sin. Hate it. Kill it. Secondly, practice obedience. These two go hand in hand, don't they? Hating sin and practicing obedience. Let's follow Christ's example of obedience in verse 8. What do he say? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He obeyed, Jesus obeyed the eternal decree of God and gave himself up to the humiliating condescension of death on a cross and everything that preceded that. The humble obedience of Christ is stunning. Consider who he is, where he came from, and what he came to. It's stunning. He had the crowds, he had the influence, he had the power, he had the smarts, he had the opportunity. He had whatever he wanted. He could have done whatever he wanted. But he always kept his eternal objective in view. He never played to the crowds. Even when his own disciples tried to convince him to abandon his journey to the cross, he rebuked them and reminded them that he came to do the will of his Father. He came to obey. 
The great Charles Spurgeon said, there is no humility like obedience. There is no humility like obedience. The scripture says in a few places, to obey is better than sacrifice. Listen, Sun Valley Church, obedience is the greatest form of humility. You want to be a humble person? You want to be a harmonious church? Let's obey the scriptures. You don't have to beat yourself or starve yourself or demean yourself or invent anything that would exalt your own determination and strength. No, the humility that Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 is simply imitating Christ's obedience. It is to be simply counting others as more significant than yourselves. It's to be others oriented instead of being self oriented. It's obedience. And Christ's obedience wasn't just during his life and ministry. No, it went all the way to his last breath. But then Paul adds, even to death on the death on the cross. And as we know, there was no worse death. Jesus could have died. It was violent, extremely painful. To think about the pain of large nails being driven through your hands and feet into rough wood is enough to make any of us quiver. He was ridiculed and mocked by the crowd. A more inhumane situation could not be imagined. Jesus obeyed in the face of all consequences of Holy Week. Why? For your eternal joy. How we respond, Christian friend, is to imitate his humble obedience and putting them first for their eternal joy. So let's practice these things. Let's practice hating sin. Let's practice obedience. Thirdly, let's practice self-denial. Christ's self-denial is what God becoming man is all about. Self-denial, you say, is anti-American, and I would agree with you. It's definitely countercultural. You might think, well, who's going to look good after my interests if I don't? Are you? Well, if we're in Christ, we ought to. If we're in Christ, we have to consider others' needs as more important than my own. That's the point here that Paul is making in these verses. Are, are, are you easily a friend, offended? Do people seem to wrong you more than your fair share? Consider Christ. Did they do that to him? Are you offended when others don't make much of your hard work? Are you offended when people don't acknowledge your contributions? Consider Christ. Have you acknowledged Christ's contribution to your eternal good, your eternal joy? How have you acknowledged that, Christian friend? You see, Jesus literally denied himself and took up his cross for you and for me. We should practice denying ourselves and take up our cross, our humility, our unfair treatment for him. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Next, we should practice avoiding the praise of men. We all love the praise of men. Let's not fool ourselves. Let's not try to uh, portray some false humility about that. We all love it when people tell us how great we are. But it feeds our sinful nature when that happens. And so we need to practice avoiding that. Jesus regularly left the crowds to keep marching towards Calvary. He could have stayed and gathered a huge group, and big gathering, hundreds of people in his church every week, maybe thousands, probably thousands. He had 25,000 in one service at one point. 
He had 100,000 people meet him in Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. But he left the crowds behind to keep marching towards Calvary. The only crown Jesus wore while on earth was a crown of thorns. Are you and I looking for the praise of men or the praise of God? We know that as Christians, the praise of men never satisfied, satisfies us. Let's pursue the praise of God. Now, to those who are listening to me, who may not have yet embraced Christ, who may not have yet given up the range or the control of their life, they're still operating their own agenda. They have not embraced the Savior of the world who came for them. I'm talking to non-Christians. How should we respond, non-Christian? How should you respond? Again, the great Charles Spurgeon said this, doubt becomes harder than faith when the cross is visible. Let me read that again. Doubt becomes harder than faith when the cross is visible. Do you doubt Jesus died for you, unsaved friend? Look at the cross. Do you doubt God loves you, unsaved friend? Look at the cross. Friends, I have described the cross of Christ for you this morning. You can see the love of God in the cross, can you not? You can see the humility of Christ in the cross, can you not? You can see his obedience in the cross. You can see Christ's commitment to you in the cross. Do you still have questions, unsaved friends? Have you responded to the cross of Christ? Christ's cross is calling out to you. Will you answer? Will you come? Listen to these verses and I'll conclude with these. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's why Jesus came, to bring you to God. Jesus said in Matthew 11.28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you concerned? Are you worked up? Are you afraid? Especially now in this crisis we're facing, do you have a heavy burden of anxiety bearing on your soul? Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to the sovereign, omniscient one, and I will give you rest. Acts 16, 31, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from your own agenda and pursue Christ and you will be saved. Friends, the cross is for you. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you've embraced Christ or have no clue who he is, the cross is for you. Please come, pray with me. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no more momentous time in the life of anybody who has ever lived than today to consider the magnitude of the work of Jesus Christ for humanity's sake to think of all that transpired 2,000 years ago in the plan of God to accomplish the purposes of God for the people of God. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. Draw those who are yet to bow the knee to Christ, draw them to yourself now at this moment. Those who have already come, just overwhelm our souls with the importance of Christ and his cross. 
Oh Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Have mercy on this planet. Have mercy on all of your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.